Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Danny, we're back after our first uh, episode with a guest speaker, Beth Cobert. Uh, that that was uh, that was interesting. That was a couple of takeaways there. Yeah, but but, but before we get into that, I want to I want to go back a, a couple of podcasts um, where we were talking about Star Wars. Well, you were talking about I Star was talking Wars about to Star be Wars. clear. Yeah. And I'm, I'm well, right after we taped that podcast where I was... Any spoiler alert we have to worry about? Because no, not well, everyone has seen the movie. That's true. I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I made the point that I, I'd like to be able to... I think more and more you can, you can think about uh, interesting ways to tie the challenges that we see in government to... Uh, to Star Wars, and and I made that point in the podcast, and then as soon as we stopped taping, and I went on on to my day, I saw on Twitter like the perfect uh, tweet. Um, it the said, perfect tweet. The perfect tweet about like, and it said that Rogue One is the story of an extraordinarily difficult FOIA request. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Which is really funny. That was going around my office too. Yes. Because we, you know, because we work on these issues, so everyone thought that was brilliant. Yeah, it was perfect. Because because really, what Rogue <laughs> One is about is they need to go get these documents on the plans of the Death Star, and they have to <laughs> penetrate a lot of uh, bureaucracy and. Uh, and well, actually, more like a uh, an army of droids or stormtroopers to get it. But I, I just thought that was that was funny. And do, do you remember the uh, Terry Gilliam movie Brazil? I didn't see it. Oh, uh, that was uh, that was back maybe the early '90s. A uh, bit of a culty flick yeah. there. But um, in that ep- in that movie, the the whole subtext was a government agency received a check back. And they're, they're they're not designed to receive the check back, and so the the poor bureaucrat who gets assigned with returning the check to the person who accidentally sent the check back gets dragged into some very complicated. Uh, there's a, there's a theme here. There's also there's a, there's a movie I think from the '90s called Clerks, and in that movie there's a whole soliloquy and a whole point about the Death Star and how uh, how unfair labor practices probably reigned during its construction. So I think Beth is wincing that we're somehow yeah I don't know yeah this is all my the fault. conversation <laughs> let's from, get back uh, to from last week or the week before to um, uh, to uh, the Death Star. All right, let's get back to let's get back to our discussion with Beth and uh, what what were some of your takeaways? What were some of your thoughts? Well, uh, one of the takeaways is I think it's really hard for someone who is actually you know, in the position at the time to speak freely about some of the challenges they're facing. A hundred percent agree. fascinating yeah. takeaway. And I think, uh, I think Beth handled it masterfully, but there are a lot of things, you know, you want to ask the sitting OPM director that you just can't. Which is what you're saying. We need to have her back on the, on the yeah, podcast January 21st. I, I, I think so. <laughs> like sometime in February. I give it a March, you know, uh, yeah, a I think it takes compression. Time. It took little, me a little time. To I'm still kind of, going through it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this is therapy for us more than anything else. But uh, I, I actually think the, the important part, I, I'm, I'm really pleased that Beth was our first guest because you keep driving home the point that successful transformation of government process really starts with the people 
who are there um, leading, leading the process, driving the process, and, and doing the work of the process. Yeah, and it's really you know interesting that so much of our time and energy uh, in talking about government uh, can sometimes orient right down to the underperformers, the mistakes that are made, and then there's this whole narrative that starts to emerge. I, I experienced a lot um, when I started to get into government leadership positions. Is that, you know, we, you know, it's hard. We can't fire anyone in the in the federal government. And even now, like some of the um, the uh, reforms that are being considered, uh, that are being discussed around the workforce, they go right to making it easier to to fire people. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that has to be put into a proper place with other uh, human resource and human capital changes. It can't just be about we've got to figure out where our underperformers are and fire them all. Um, that is it's a really unhealthy approach, although I can see how that can be a part of a larger framework of change. It's not where I'd start, though. Well, it's very interesting. When I was a city administrator, the head of the Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services, Vinnie Chiraldi, we were going through his budget, and we were talking about, you know, cutting here and reducing there, and and he stopped the conversation, and he said, "Look, I understand you've got this job. You got to fit 50 pounds into a 25-pound sack. That's that's cool. I get it. But can we make this conversation less a deficit-based conversation?" and more an outcomes, a positive outcomes-based conversation. Why don't we talk about what we're trying to accomplish and work back there for the number? And I have to tell you, it was, um, it was I think, one of the most useful reframings of perspective and a really solid technique, by the way, in a budget conversation. But I, I actually, I, I try to bring that back to myself every time I'm having one of these conversations. If you focus on where you don't want to go, you're likely to hit that. You know, if you focus on the deficit, if you focus on the negative, if you focus on what's wrong, it gets hard in it to get excited about what you're actually there to try to achieve. Yeah, what is it that you want or what do we want out of, out of our workforce? Um, what, what's the ultimate objective? What's the vision? It can't just be that we want a smaller one. That, that might be part of your vision, but that's... It's it's got to it's got to be a higher performing, more more equipped, more more positioned and ready to um, to be the steward of taxpayer dollars that we want them to be and to deliver the, the services and the activities that are as, as as high performing as possible on uh, on a reasonable and maybe on a small budget uh, because we want to protect scarce resources and and so you know I don't know if that's the right mission statement but there's some broader objective that I think, as, as you and I have been pointing out, embraces a more positive view of, of what we want. I, I don't know if that's how, how achievable that is in, in a world in which, you know, we, we often paint the government in, in, and it, in particular its workforce in a negative light. But I think that's, that's one of the main points that you and I have been well, trying to make. Well, and I think, uh, you know, you, you, um, you affect what you can affect when you're in the government. You, you recognize that your environment, maybe your political environment, maybe even your communications environment is nothing, isn't something you can change. But there are many things within your operating environment you can change. And if you look at the Partnership for Public Services and OPM's joint efforts around the EVS, the Employee Viewpoint Survey, where they measure relative engagement and 
and uh, I don't know, happiness, I don't know if it quite measures happiness, but happiness of, of federal employees within their agencies, you find the ones that do the best score the highest. The ones that score the highest in general score the highest in communications and the, the, the view that employees have a sense of the direction that their leadership is trying to take them. Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting. In other words, what you're saying is that the agencies who score the best on the survey also uh, it, not just external communi- I mean, internal and external communications? I think it's more internal, frankly, than external in a way. Uh, th- there's this sense that people have a real idea of what it is they're trying to achieve, how you measure success, and then have some ownership uh, over that. They feel like they have a strong relationship with their manager, that their manager is honest with them. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the you know, one of the questions that, that I think agency leaders sometimes confront when they come in is, you know, what do they want their their legacy to be? You know, what is the, how, how do they leave the job in a better place than, than when they came to it? And I think one of the interesting dynamics is, how does what your workforce thinks of you as a leader? Like, if you were to be the for example, uh, since someone was just appointed the new director of OMB, as an example, since that's the organization I, I spent most of my career in, is one of your aspirations to be considered by the workforce as as one of the best directors that they've ever worked for? I mean, a lot of people there have worked for eight, nine, ten directors. Do you go in with them with is part of your mindset? I want to be the the right director for these people. In this case, these four hundred and seventy five people. Um, I want to figure out like what what their needs are uh, in a leader and what they um, what, what what helps them become better at their job and how the director can do that. Do I want, do I want to have that mindset as part of as part of how I think about my aspirations, or do you divorce yourself from that and just look at it more through the lens of the broader macro of you know, cutting the, the deficit and, and supporting the West Wing or supporting the president in some way. I, I can't imagine there's anyone who comes to a job like that who says, who doesn't have that, even if they would never outwardly admit it, <laughs> that doesn't have, you know, the, you got you remember in room 248, yes, where the, at the, where at the, the directors, OMB, yeah, yeah, the OMB directors, daily meeting, the, you know, the big weekly confab, there are all the pictures of the directors there. Yeah. And as you're sitting in that room, generally waiting for the director to come back from the from the morning meeting on the West Wing, you're looking at those directors, and some of us who had the pleasure of working for several of them are, are keeping the box score, the relative organizational <laughs> box score. I can't I imagine that's some not that. in the head of the people who are doing in the work, too. Well, I raise it because I think it's, it, it's, I think it's certainly an interesting question for, uh, to ask right now in a time of transition when a lot of people are going to be taking over the, uh, the mantle of their organizations. Um, it's in particular interesting now because people are taking over the mantle of their organizations with, um, with likely a set of strategic priorities to reverse or change course on a lot of what those organizations have been doing over the past um, eight years. Um, but, but I raise it going back to your point about uh, communication. Because I think what can what part of keeping your workforce happy is keeping them in the loop 
on decisions, on the direction, on the priorities, creating kind of a two-way communication channel. So th there's a sense that from your workforce that you're, that you're leading, that you know what they're seeing on the ground, you have a sense of what's frustrating or challenging them as they try to achieve um, the strategic priorities that, that you've laid out. And it's been my experience, you know, working for you know eight or nine different directors and and all different kinds of different leaders over the course of my career, attorneys general, secretaries, um, that you it doesn't necessarily matter in every case what direction they go in from a public policy standpoint. You have a a better sense and a better feeling about that leader if you feel like you're in the know, and if you if you're being communicated to and if you have a sense that you can communicate to them, that they are receptive to hearing different voices in the workforce about what, what's going on on the ground or what the needs are. Well, and I think it's an interesting you know, relative measure, maybe for the people who are, who are coming to these jobs now, uh, for the new administration folks. I think that uh, there are short-term um, you know, leaders who are liked and long-term leaders who are respected and maybe even liked, right? And yeah. so I think you can you can juice the EVS scores. Um, uh, you know, you can very easily become a very very liked person by turning everyone loose. You know, early, you know, Friday afternoon uh, every week, or you know, you can you, you could just you could just be easy. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the ones who are respected long term are the ones who take their agency to a new place and a new level. I, I agree. Although I'll take, I'll make one adjustment. I think it is um, much more about the early release on a Friday before a three-day weekend or something like that. And, I mean, I, I think it. Th there is a mindset uh, that leaders have when they come into organizations uh, in the federal government, um, and and that mindset is. Uh, there's a lot of different things going on in terms of what, what your aspiration, what your accomplishments are. You have different constituents. You have the constituents of the people on the Hill that are overseeing you. You have the constituents of the people in the West Wing and the president and the chief of staff who, who, who's your reporting authority. You have the constituents of your own workforce. And then you have academics and stakeholders that care about your, your, your issues. If you're at the Department of Labor, <laughs> there's unions and, and, and broader workforce issues. Um, these I all, think these yeah. all sound like deficits. Yeah. Well, I think that that one of your mindsets should be as a leader is, um, I now have a responsibility of leading an organization of X hundred or X thousand people, and I want to lead that organization. And I want to be a good leader for that organization, and um, that means. Um, effectively communicating the priorities of this organization. That means creating communication channels so that they understand uh, the directions we're taking and I understand what's going on on the ground with them. Um, it, it can mean, at times, tough love, tough decisions. It doesn't always mean that you're some kind of altruistic leader that's always siding uh, on behalf of the employees. I actually think that would be a mistake. But I think there's, a, again, going back to the point, a mindset that part of your inherent responsibility is to lead this organization, and therefore you spend part of your bandwidth thinking about the health of that organization. And again, it doesn't always mean everything positive for the employees. It can mean things, it can mean pain points for those employees. But if you're 
iterative and, and considered and thoughtful and willing to dedicate some time in terms of understanding those trade-offs and managing those trade-offs between what's good for the workforce or what's felt as a pain point for the workforce, I think that raises your stature in the long term as an effective secretary or effective director. No, I think it is important for, for the secretary, the director, to like, respect, admire, listen to the employees. But I think the employees are waiting to hear something from the leadership in terms of leadership. And what happens is a lot of people have these perceived limitations or, or um, received wisdom about limitations. They come into the job saying, well, I can't fire anyone and I, I have to do whatever you know, OMB tells me to do. And Congress, you know, people say, oh, well, Congress doesn't want you to do that or we tried that last year. And very quickly, people can lose momentum because they believe that the guardrails are much closer to them than they actually are. I remember once I was told, look, if you use that flexibility that Congress gave us, they might take it away. So don't use it. <laughs> and my view was like, haven't we just allowed them to take it away at that point? Haven't yeah. we, if we're not using it, even though they gave it to us, because we're afraid they're going to take it away, haven't we jumped to the outcome already? And I think what, what the real subtext was, I don't want to take that risk. It could cause us to have to do a hearing there might be legislation that removes it, you know, we would be quote unquote in trouble. And there's a, there's a real deep desire for no, one, for no one to get in any trouble. And the best way to do that is to kind of just keep doing what you're doing regardless of its outcome. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that, that I have a, a reputation with amongst my friends and colleagues is, is that, you know, people say I like everyone, you know, I've, and so when I think about the very, and I, I do, I, I try to see the positives in everything, and um, I have a very short statute of limitations for when people mess up in my eyes. I, I forgive quickly, because uh, I would want people to forgive me quickly when I mess up. Um, so, so when I think about all the OMB directors that, I, that I've supported over the years, starting with, with Frank Reigns, uh, straight through to... Um, uh, Sylvia Burwell was the last, and there, so there's a lot of directors in between that. I, I really l liked all of them and have e extraordinarily positive. I don't know if that was just a great streak that OMB was on, but I could sit down and um, and, and extol praise on, on each of them for different reasons. But one memory in particular that I'll, that I'll call out is on uh, Jim Nussel's first day as director. At least this is my memory. Others, others at OMB might remember this completely differently. But we're, we're at the tail end of the Bush administration. And, uh, and Jim Nussel, who was, uh, I think he was chair of the House Budget Committee before he came over to be director of OMB. And uh, he, he called the senior leadership of OMB into his office. And we kept go to his office. And his office is completely rearranged. Like he had moved the desks over and, and everything. And there was just like, like state, like, like auditorium chairs set up, which was just, okay, this is interesting. And then there was a PowerPoint presentation and he ran the PowerPoint presentation. He clicked and he presented to us. Um, and, and in that presentation, it was a, this remarkable first impression that he uh, gave to us because the theme of that presentation, as I remember it, was hey, this is cool. I now run an organization of 475 people, and I'm really excited. And one of my primary goals in being director is figuring out how to leave this organization, which is such a great institution, 
better and more healthy from from when I from when I arrive to when I leave. Now there are other things were going on. There's there are big things going on in that moment. You know the fiscal there was a fiscal crisis going on and um, and the banking crisis. And so it wasn't like it was all about OMB. But setting that tone in that first meeting around one of my top priorities is you you the organization the institution and your people very powerful. I had no other director than I, I had, again, great directors, but no one set that tone in that way. It was just, it made us all want to work really hard for him. That's fantastic. That's this idea of saying, I'm not just here to, you know, pilot this boat for some portion of the journey. I actually have a destination. I'm going to help. I'm going to try to chart and I'm going to I'm going to rely on you to help me get there. Yeah, and, and again, it doesn't, and this is our message to incoming, you know, leaders. It's not that you're exclusively about that. It's that you're finding room for that dimension of your job in your portfolio. It is really, really a, a cool and amazing experience to lead one of these organizations. You and I have both done it. It is, it is inspiring. It's inspiring for what you get to do in terms of your impact broader to the United States, to, to this country that we all love. Um, but there's also a really powerful impact of leading an organization of, of dedicated people. Um, and, and make room for that on your, on your portfolio of things that you want to get done. Because, again, it will not only be rewarding, uh, it'll help with your, your legacy, but also it'll help you get your other priorities done. They're, they're intertwined. So um, let's go back through the last few um, pods. Right now, uh, right at the midpoint here, leaders lead, right? So what does that mean? Uh, last pod, we had Beth Cover talking about a, a fundamentally the, the thing you lead, the, 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 the team you lead are, is comprised of people. It's, it's all about the people. And then the last, the one before that, we were talking about outcomes, uh, really focusing in on what it is your agency or your s- subcomponent actually does. When we come back, let's talk about how you put it together. Okay. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. All right, Danny, so we're back, and we've been talking about about leadership, about you know, people, and, and about outcomes. This is the Gov Actually podcast, right? Those are all great theories. How do you actually put those together to, to be effective? How do you implement you know, those? How do you take those ingredients in the kitchen, turn it into an actual recipe for success? Well, I, I Notice how I started with the, the question. question. I push it back to you, so I don't actually have to answer. And I have to have all the answers. Well, no, and then well, I'll disagree with what you say. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, that's good. You should I'll make it more interesting. Um, look, I um, when I went to the IRS, um, I felt like I learned uh, in real time what uh, what leadership engagement meant. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that I did it perfectly, but I went up a very steep learning curve. Um, and, and what I learned is is that there's a couple of 
key pieces to, to leadership to effective leadership. Uh, first is you have to have a set of priorities, um, and and they have to be somewhat limited. Uh, you can't try to boil the ocean and do everything. So you have to kind of set up uh, a limited number of things you you want to get done. You've got to you've got to communicate them extremely clearly, uh, both internally and externally, and stick to it. Um, and then, and this is the this is can be the 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 tough part. You have to um, you have to move resources around to align to those priorities. Uh, that includes dollars to the extent you have the ability to do that, and talent. Um, so you know if if you have two or three priorities in your organization, you want to get the A team uh, on that priority. Um, and then the other piece is removing barriers. Um, so it's not just about moving resources to those priorities. It's also, okay, so what's preventing? Is there, is there a policy I can change? Is there a regulation that needs to be rewritten? Is there something that's slowing us down, a, a, a requirement that the general counsel's office has that's maybe a little bit too risk-averse and I need to talk to them about I, it? I, I love that idea that, uh, that a leader is not someone who's necessarily – you know, trying to get thread people through the needle of the uh, of the the um, guardrails that the leader is actually taking a bit of a hammer to the guardrails to seeing if they can get a little more room for people to get through. Yeah, I mean, you, and again, it's like I have this uh, this this memory of, of being at OMB and. Um, and we one of the thi- and and there was an agency that came in to to uh, to request money for a major major system modernization. And at that time, OMB had like a checklist of things we asked before you get the money. The form three hundred. Uh, something like Exhibit fifty three. Something. Oh, Who knows? All I can't right. remember the numbers. But this prob- is Gov. Actually, we need to have. I know. These I need to get. I've lost, my, I've lost my fastball on all oh, my OMB all right. circulars. Right. We're well, gonna have to go back I'll and study, study up. up. That's yeah. what the holidays are for. One of the things on the checklist was uh, leadership is engaged. And I remember at the time the agency, we said, oh, so is your leadership engaged? And, and they said yes. And they handed us a memo, an email that had gone out from the head of the agency to the rest of the organization saying, I care about this project. This project is important. <laughs> and we said, OK, that's, there's, there you go. At the time, I didn't know what else to ask for. Did you ask who wrote the memo? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, know, I, I, you know, it's just one of these things where now, like years later, I realized. Was it auto-penned? It probably was not written by the by the head of the organization. I don't know if they even read it. Who knows? But the the point is is that stuff like that is important. Right. I don't don't get me wrong. You need those types of optic signals. You know, the the secretary, the deputy secretary, coming into a meeting, pounding their their fist on the table, saying this is important to me. That that stuff has to happen as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point I was raising, like, are you really are you moving resources? to that priority, like talent and money and effort. So that, are, you, are you removing barriers? That's a, a more engagement than just a memo. That's a really, that's a really good point. Uh, when my first day at OMB as a, as a, a junior chipmunk uh, budget preparation specialist, I went to see my boss and, and he actually, he was my boss's boss. He invited every new employee to sit down with him for about an hour, tried to get to know who they were. And that was one of my first great management lessons is that uh, you lead people and so you have to know who they are. Um, but I was trying very hard to impress. I'm still, I'm still in the interview mindset. And, and I said, well, look, I understand our job is to support the president in in realizing his priorities. Is there somewhere I could go 
I, and I, I was working under the first Bush one, Bush one um, uh, administration. Dick Darman was the OMB director, brilliant OMB director. Uh, and I said, is there somewhere I can go where I can get the president's priorities? It's a great question, fantastic question. Walked over, made a big show of walking over to his bookshelf, pulling out this thick book and dropping it in front of me. It was the budget appendix. And he said, that is the list of the president's priorities. And I said, I'm, I'm confused. This is the budget. This is what we're supposed to be building around those priorities. And he said, that's right. If it's funded, it's a priority. So now, who said this to you? This was uh, Dick Emery. Oh, Dick Emery. Okay, yeah. But isn't, isn't that too many priorities? Well, I, I think actually if you then boil down the appendix, each agency is funding its you know, specific priorities or agencies are getting cut because they're not, frankly, ultimately a priority. Yeah. I would argue that as, a, as you're coming yeah, – I mean, this is part of the – this is, I think, one of the real tension and challenges for leadership – uh, probably in the private sector as well, uh, but I'll speak more to the public sector, which is you have to set these priorities, but there are people and pockets of your organization that are doing things that matter that they might not be in your priority uh, list. That doesn't mean they, they don't need to happen. They don't need to happen effectively, and they might one day pop into your priority mm -hmm. list. Mm -hmm. um, how do you keep those people engaged? How do you keep, keep those people motivated when you're out talking and you're saying, my top three priorities are X, Y, and Z, and they're doing A, B, or C, right. uh, and then they feel uh, undervalued? And so navigating that is, uh, is an important part of the job. But I think that's why you have a hierarchy. The president can talk about X, Y, and Z. Now, the, the, I don't know, the administrator of GSA, who will never be an X, a Y, or a Z, right. very unlikely to be an X, if Y, If you or are, Z. something went really bad. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think it was X, Y, or Z for the first couple of months yeah. I was there. Yeah. Uh, and then decidedly ABC for the next uh, six years. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, the agency head needs their, you know, they need their, you know, top priorities. Yep. And then the people below them need their priorities who, who support that priority. And even, even if they're not, I mean, I, it's a great experience we had. We started this kind of conversation at the beginning at GSA through our top to bottom review, looking at our, our uh, mission statement. And our mission statement had clearly become this very kind of political thing that people needed to see essentially you know, their name in it, right? or they're, yeah, they're exactly, completely yeah. unhappy. And we had this mission statement that if you read at the, you know, Thanksgiving dinner table to your family and said, okay, guess the agency. I mean, you could have easily come up with the Justice Department as well as the general. I don't think anyone would have guessed General Services Administration. And that's because everyone was getting a piece yeah, of the it pie. Was, yeah. Everyone got a piece of the pie. A great example, we looked at the mission statement when I was over at Treasury at the Mint, and the Mint's mission statement talked about, you know, U.S. history and, and arts and culture. It didn't talk about coins. <laughs> yeah, that's the elephant in the room being left off, the, left off the, the statement. That's good. So I think to some extent that's part of where you start is at the beginning and ask the question, what do we do? And really get people focused on the what we do. Well, and I think if you, if you start to describe do what we're doing which is starting piecing together you you establish priorities you communicate them effectively then what starts to surface in that discussion and in your go forward is what are the gaps that need to be closed from this organization from a readiness standpoint 
do we have the right skill sets? Do we have the right tools? Like, what is it? Where, where do you, you know, I can, I could picture a civil servant sitting down with their new secretary in the next few months, or, you know, or next, late next month, and say, okay, these are your priorities. This is, and, and, and this is what you want to accomplish in the first four months, and the first eight months, and then the first 12 months. Um, this is what we're going to need. This is, this is the challenge. Here are the resources that we need. Here's the changes that we need. Some of it is going to be frustrating for the new leadership because some of it's not going to be able to turn on a dime and the readiness just isn't going to be there. And I think that's another good thing, a good point you're making is that I think having the four, eight, 12 month strategy is very important, but there should really be a two, three, four, and 10 year strategy too. I think if you're if you're approaching it the way Jim Nussel was, is how do I leave a better institution? How do I give this uh, organization an instruction set that it can pursue over a longer period of time? Recognizing your average OMB director's tenure is less than two years, but they can yeah. have they can have massive long-term impact on the organization in that two years. I'll uh, um, uh, uh, you. Know, uh, Stockman or or, or Darman, um, who you know very much changed the relative position of OMB within a within the organization. Yeah, and there, again, it goes to the diverse portfolio of what you're trying to do. Some of it should be immediate. There should be a four month outcome, an eight month outcome, a twelve month outcome, a three year outcome. Some of it you're just setting the wheels in motion. So at at the at, a couple of pods ago, I talked about the retirement. Uh, boom that's coming uh, and that's cresting and will likely crest over the next four to eight years in a very significant way, uh, which presents challenge because you lose a lot of institutional knowledge and a lot of potential productivity, but also opportunity because through attrition, you uh, probably will have a longer length of rope to to work with in order to reshape the organization, potentially eliminate layers, uh, consolidate redundant offices. Um, the way you fill those positions um, can be very strategic, and but that might take time. The target operating world that you're looking to leverage attrition to create might be more of a five or six year journey um, that, that might outlive you. Uh, but part of, again, your, your aspiration and your portfolio of being the leader of that organization might be to set those wheels in motion and then effectively position the next leader to, to take it to that next mile marker. Yeah, and one of my favorite OMB directors, Leon Panetta, at the time he was OMB director, I don't think he knew, and we certainly didn't know, that there were three OMB directors working there at the same time in terms of the fact that he had Leon Panetta, Alice Rivlin, and Jack Liu all on the staff of OMB with, with Leon as the director, uh, Alice as the deputy director, and Jack Liu as, I think, Alice's deputy. Um, and so what was interesting was not only did you have some specific motions to change and improve the institution in the form of the OMB 2000, you also had this, um, you had this ability to hand the torch off and pass the torch off that would have you know, m more than a decade long impact and effect on the way the organization was run. Yeah, and maybe this is a pod that we should be having 18 months or two years after the inauguration when the first wave of uh, secretaries and leaders starts to, to shift around and move on, which is the importance of aligning the successor with the outgoing in a way that, that, that the baby isn't thrown out with the bathwater. I, I, would, I would say it 
a little different. I'd say to the new people coming in, you're going to hear a lot about 100-day plans. You should be thinking about your, you know, what is the 10-year legacy? What is the 10-year impact you're going to have in the organization? Fair enough, but I'm a huge fan of the 100-day plan. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive, and right. I think that's the problem. People say, don't talk to me about that future stuff. I need to know what I'm doing right now, and I think that that's fundamentally our biggest problem in some of these organizations. People don't think about the fact that if you actually sit back and 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 have some idea of where you want it to go over three, four, five, or ten years, you can actually begin to build momentum in that direction over time. So closing thought from me, just since you raise a hundred day, because uh, I think one of the when I talk to people about their first hundred days, one of the things I emphasize is listening. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's such a powerful thing to do to go on a listening tour of your organization. First of all, you get incredible insights and you'll get a feel. You don't have to like what you're hearing. It's not about liking what you're hearing. It's about getting the data that you need to understand what's going on in the organization. You'll learn about the culture, about the aspirations, about the issues, if you get people talking. So that's A. B is it's an incredibly symbolic, important symbolic gesture to, to sit down early and instead of arriving and giving marching orders, uh, arrive and be in listening mode, um, it, it, it sends a very powerful message to the organization. And, and it's interesting. I think the best way you can start the listening is by calling people up and saying, I want to listen to you. Don't wait for people to show up in your office. You know, yeah. you're... you're your fanciness is established by the fact that you've been tapped. Yes. Right? Yeah. I have the humility to now say, I know you know I'm fancy, but I'm coming to you, rather than uh, allowing yourself to get ensconced in those giant chandeliered and, and wainscoted offices and making people come to you. Listening is such a lost art <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I just think it's such a powerful characteristic of a leader to be a good listener um, and doing a lot of it early on. That's what you want to front load a lot of your listening at the beginning of, of the term. So I, I think that's my, my maybe my top piece of advice for all these incoming new officials. I like that. I think it, I think it starts on day one. Um, and it starts with the people maybe, uh, you know, you, you may initially have some some issue with or some disagreement with. My first call when I was GSA administrator was to Daryl Issa. I figured, you know, I better call him because I know he's calling me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had a really great conversation, and I think it it sparked, you know, some initial uh, trust and detente that allowed us to get through a very difficult situation. So I would say reach out to the people who are, we're at least expecting a call from you on that day one and say, I, I want to hear what you have to say. We might not agree, but I'm going to listen and I'm going to be thoughtful. Absolutely. All right. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Danny.